would I be a hench person if I for sure got like really good physio and an extended dental? I might. I might. I know this about myself now. I'm Michael Tamlin, CEO of Racked and Kobo. We make e-readers and apps, and we sell ebooks and audiobooks all over the world, and we do it because we love reading and we want to make reading lives better. One of the best parts of the work that we do is that we get to talk with authors about their latest work as well as the books that shaped them as writers and as readers. This is Cobone Conversation. My guest today is Natalie Zena Walshots. She is a poet, a game writer, she's the author of the novel Hench. The premise is irresistible. Through Anna, its main character, Hench shows what it might be like to work for a supervillain. Not just anonymously shooting back at the heroes, what's it like to work inside the hollowed out volcano, to paint the side of the death ray? What's the pay like? How do you get hired? How do you get your budget approved? What's the office vibe? And are some bad guys actually good bosses? She covers all of this and more, and it's fantastic. Natalie Zina Walshots, welcome to Kobo. Thank you so much for having me. I'm extremely amped to be here. You are one of these great interview subjects where we could take this in six different directions and the real challenge is deciding where to start. We have your erotically charged supervillain poetry, your life (laughs) as a creator and contributor in gaming, you as a fan, you as a writer and thinker about fandom and books and comics and video games and slasher films, and your latest book. But because we are all about reading and writing lives, and we, we want the full life, I want to take you back in time to when it all began. Tell me about Natalie the Kid. What was she like as a reader and general consumer of media. So you need to imagine the least cool child that has ever lived on the planet Earth. And I don't mean like like in a like in a now in hindsight is cool sort of way, like put that part out of your mind. Uh, extremely awkward and dorky and not really somebody who I would say grade school was not like an easy experience for me. I don't think that's surprising to anybody who's seen any of my work, but uh, it was a a very bad time. Um, So I read voraciously and constantly, um, often for sheer escapism, but uh, also because uh, one of the great things about being um, an extremely weird and unpopular kid is you develop uh, a very deep and vast internal world and Mm -hmm. a huge capacity for um, imaginative play and imagination. Surprising, I think no one uh, as a teenager, I would get extremely into live action role play and played like a lot of Vampire the Masquerade. Uh, And I definitely blame those early experiences being profoundly uncool and uh, needing to escape from my current situation into um, into other and alternate realities. And, and for sure, my relationship with books and my reading habits was a really profound part of that. And so what were what were some of the the authors of the series that that grabbed you, you know, right away? 
Um, I remember reading um, the uh, both The Secret of Nim and, and uh, Zed for Zachariah as a way too early, like as a, as a very, very little kid. Um, and having those be uh, really profoundly informative to me as um, as early expect early spec fic, like early exposure mm-hmm. to spec fic for me. Um, I wouldn't have uh, categorized them that way, but they certainly are. Um, I read a lot of uh, a lot of high fantasy, obviously, like Tolkien was extremely important to me, but so is like Dragonlance and like the the Shannara series. <laughs> yes, and, like, it was. If there was if there was like a wizard holding an orb, is there a on the gl- cover? Is there a glowing ring, a sword, a something? Yeah, <laughs> there's like a staff, a dragon in the background. Like yeah. I am, I'm in. I'm 100 percent in. I, I I definitely was in then. Um, I also uh, consumed a lot of horror. Um, and the thing, the thing about being a horror fan, especially as a little kid, is uh, it's really scary. <laughs> like it's it's actually very frightening and and distressing. And uh, you know, certainly I I like it's still experience sleep intrusive cycles. thoughts. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I definitely like you know would watch a movie and then not sleep for three days because the the you know the a creature from seven was definitely like doing that horrible rattling breathing under my bed. Mm-hmm. Um, so those, you know, the, those experience of being profoundly unsettled, but also fascinated by material had a, a really deep impact on me. So I think that, um, I think I always gravitated toward, um, toward genre fiction for the, uh, because of the way that it touched me, because in the way it could transport me to a a completely different place, um, but b also uh, you know I've I've I feel like the joy um, the just sheer pleasure of reading and also the like profound emotional reactions I had to what I was reading um, has always been. Uh, I've always felt it most intensely um, when engaging with genre material. It's it's funny how much how much book discovery has changed and especially um, uh, book discovery around genre fiction, because I, mm-hmm. as, as one of those kids who was a sci-fi fan, a, you know, a fantasy fan, I remember going into the bookstore and so much of it was, well, that covers got a dragon on it. Like clearly this, <laughs> this book is for me. You know, there's no metadata. There's no, like, you know, if you've read this, you've also read this. It's just like, okay. You know, clearly this person has put the like two or three visual cues on here that I need. There's an embossed spaceship on the front. All right, let's go. You, you get my seven ninety nine. <laughs> is a skeleton holding a sword? Great. Good. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Is also with a ring. Okay, that's all we need. Great, um, it's clearly glowing. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and... that's that's all I it's all I require. And so, <laughs> obviously, there's a bigger media diet there. Um, so, kind of put the the reading in the context of comics and you know video games and and music and the the other stuff that was swirling around you. Yeah, kind of as you were going through your teen years. Oh, sure thing. Um, I, I I started playing video games like uh, as a little kid, like I think a lot of us did, uh, and it's something that I never grew out of. Um, I think that uh, the storytelling that you can do in games is 
fascinating and profound and not like anything else. And, and again, certainly some deeply gripping emotional experiences, you know, happened to me while, you know, while playing games, like while playing Chrono Trigger or early Final Fantasy games, like there are when you spend hundreds of hours with a character uh, and then something great or terrible happens to them, that can be really heart wrenching. I, I started collecting comics as um, as a young teen. So like, you know, kind of like 12, 13, 14, maybe. Again, it's something that that never left me. Um, I was always profoundly interested in visual storytelling and in the, you know, in the sort of um, cross or, or transmedia potential in comic books that that's always been there. Yeah, and I've, I've always been a fan of aggressive music. So those sorts of things all fit together to, again, I think, uh, at least at the time, make me deeply less cool, um, but also uh, very much informed the way that my relationship with with storytelling developed as a as a comic collector were you a read it till they fall apart collector or a slipcover collector read it till they fall apart yeah okay. i i definitely was there to read them um i i collect uh, i still collect and at the time collected um like the like graphic novel forms uh, much more than I did individual comics. I certainly have a bunch, like I have a full uh, original run of the Max and Friends of the Max by Sam Keith because it was one of the first things I collected. It was super, super important to me. I have them all. Um, but most of what I bought and most of what I still buy is not those, uh, you know, the, the like highly prized fragile like put it in plastic and never touch it like i want something i can read to tatters and when i do i can buy another one and it is okay (laughs) right now there is a moment that i ask everybody about but it's it's an important one in these conversations you know everyone who makes it onto this show has a moment where they went from reader to writer or from audience to creator and so when was that moment for you in this? When did you start to say, I, I want to make my own? Um, I really came to that, I think, via fan fiction and fan culture. Um, I wrote fan fiction before I knew fan fiction existed, like mm-hmm. bef- before the internet, when I realized this was a thing other people did. Um, you know, I, I kept notebooks of... Uh, I'm sure horrifically embarrassing now, but, you know, alternate versions of stories that I liked and character backstories that I wished were more fleshed out. And, um, you know, I was I was writing that for no one but myself. Um, It was a it was a very, very private and solitary and intimate kind of thing. Um, And then when I discovered the Internet and realized that this was something a lot of people did. And in fact, the idea that I could read someone else's alternate takes on things was completely revolutionary to me and that I could provide that for somebody else was an extraordinary feeling. Um, so it was, it was really that relationship with, um, experiencing like the profound joy of discovering a piece that someone else had written set in a universe I also loved that was just there because we both loved that thing and then also being able to give that experience back that is incredibly addictive and that that feedback loop and that very unique relationship between um creator and audience is is 
is super, super addictive and really, really lovely. Um, and I think that, uh, I think it was really that connection that, you know, convinced me this was the thing I, I for sure wanted to do with my life. I'd always kind of thought like, I'm going to be a writer. Like I've always written things. I've always, I've, you know, I had been processing my life um, through the written word for a very long time at that point. But it was really that like, you know, I have have the internet at home now and I'm spending a ridiculous amount of time online and I'm developing this relationship with other writers and other readers and and this is what I want to do. This is the this is the thing I want to keep happening to me. I don't want to bounce off fan fiction too quickly because mm-hmm. it's been a it's been a theme that's come up in a number of the conversations that we've had. It seems to have become a more and more common on ramp for people starting to either build a practice of writing or or as importantly write with the with the knowledge that there's going to be someone on the other side reading that you're kind of you're yeah. writing plugging into a community um were you both a a writer and a consumer of fan fiction like was that did that make up a significant part of your reading diet for a while absolutely yeah yeah i would i would say that when i was uh I would say it was it was pretty even for a while, mm-hmm. certainly, like definitely when I was a teenager um, and then kind of I, I, uh, I maybe drifted away for a while, but then in my mid-20s kind of came back to in that way that I think a lot of us realize in our, our mid-20s and early 30s that like 16-year-old us actually really knew how to have a good time and like <laughs> there's something to these wizards and spaceships and maybe I shouldn't be embarrassed about that. That's right. But My yeah, life would, is becoming more stressful now, and I need some of those comforts. <laughs> I would like to play D&D again. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, exa- exactly. Um, but, uh, but certainly, like, for a long time, I would say it was, it was pretty close to 50-50. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think the experience of seeing, um, you know, it, within the same universe, you could experience a like literally 500,000 word like slow burn friends to lovers like pairing fiction or like a bunch of completely absurdist 100 word drabbles and they both fit and Mm -hmm. functioned and were embraced and like seeing the different forms and modes and the way that different the people engaged with them and um and the sort of like extremely supportive uh environment toward um content generation like it was new updates were greeted with great joy and that that was a really cool thing to watch and participate in a lot so yeah i i definitely say that um you know certainly for a while there was it was probably half of what i was reading well and one of the things that i find so interesting about it is that for for people getting started in writing especially it is completely counter to this idea of writing as the loneliest profession that yeah. you're you know you are you're doing it in the midst of both a supportive community a feedback loop uh, an instant audience in a way that just didn't exist before and uh, and I wonder if that's making it easier for people to get through that first hard like those first hard years of starting to put craft together mm-hmm. i mean that that makes it makes a lot of sense it's also a great place to make mistakes in writing wise mm-hmm. you know you can uh no one is like looking for 
genius work when it's like oh, I just want to read like another comfortable thing set in a universe I know I already love with characters I already like it doesn't have to be perfect it just has to like sit with me in a particular kind of way and there's there it's a which isn't to say that um there isn't some like utterly brilliant fan fiction on I would argue the level of any literature in in the world like mm -hmm. some of it's extraordinary um but it doesn't have to be and that kind of the space where it doesn't have to be, I think, is is very, very important. Um, and it, I think it lets uh, writers, especially, um, you know, people who are just figuring it out and finding their voice and figuring out what they like to write and figuring out how things work, um, you can make those mistakes pretty safely and, you know, just kind of tell the story that you want to tell and also get pretty constructive gentle feedback comparatively speaking right like mm -hmm. you get a lot of people who are super familiar with the characters and super familiar with the kinds of stories that are here gently guiding you toward things or or people who have made the same mistakes giving you pointers and it's it's all there kind of waiting for you and that's that's really extraordinary when did poetry start to show up for you as something that both you wanted to read and you wanted to write I started both reading and writing poetry. Um, like I'd, I'd written some like very bad little kid poetry for sure. Um, but when I was about 13 or 14, uh, I started um, digging into it much more seriously, both as an outlet and also as uh, as somebody who is who was consuming poetry. Um, I, I started, uh, I got very, very into um experimental Canadian poetry pretty early. So like Christian Book and Karen Soley and, you know, writers like that who are doing super weird things with language and um, the structural materiality of language. And, you know, I, I started looking at the more concrete work of uh, poets like B.P. Nickel, um, mm -hmm. who I'd ultimately do my master's thesis on, um, who also wrote The Raccoons and, uh, and Fraggle Rock. <laughs> uh, so like extremely I, cool. I did not um, know that that really yeah absolutely yeah he was a writer for Fraggle Rock yeah wrote some really great episodes in fact uh it's all about joy at the end of the day um but yeah that that uh it's such a different creative mode from fiction like it, it feels like a completely different thing like it's a completely different art form and honestly like when when I when I was a little bit older and you know taking creative writing programs at the university level, I thought um, poetry at that point was the thing that was coming most naturally to me, that felt the most comfortable to do, um, that was, uh, it was the most intellectually stimulating and that it was, it could be extremely difficult, especially when you're getting into, again, more um, constraint-based poetry, um, which, you know, really, really intrigued me. And I was, I was kind of, you know, forcing the the pieces and the language that I was using into smaller and smaller boxes and tighter and tighter spaces and, you know, putting more restrictions and, and on what I was creating. And I found that extremely creatively inspiring um, and, and produced a lot of uh, a lot of earlier work that I was very, very proud of. So it, it seemed at that point in my life that um, that was where I should focus my career's energy, that that was that was the thing I should be doing. So you have two collections of poetry, Thumbscrews and Doom, love poems for supervillains. Um, and both of them deal 
either directly or indirectly with both the culture and the language of bondage and domination and S&M. Doom takes those themes and then layers superheroes and supervillains on top of them. But it, you know, it picks up for me on something that you were talking about earlier with the idea of poetry as constraint. And so I'm I'm interested in how you put all of those together in, you know, in poetry and what you were trying to explore there. When I was about 17, I wrote a series of haiku that were bondage haiku. I chose the form specifically because they it's it's incredibly spare and um, is entirely about constraint and restriction, um, but also about leap in logic or inspiration. It's kind of the spaces in haiku where things open up that are are really, really extraordinary. Um, for such a little poem, there's a huge amount of space inside. And that way, uh, haiku are kind of like haunted houses. They're much bigger on the inside than the outside. And that, uh, that pairing um, between spare little poem and big, big space inside really stuck with me. And I realized that, you know, the, the pairing between um, BDSM as a topic and constraint-based um, or very formulaic poetry as a structure were profoundly wedded together in, in a way that warranted a lot more um, exploration. And the same kind of, uh, you know, starting with haiku, the same kind of internal space or um, internal uh, leap that happens um, when the body is under constraint, or sorry, when the when the poem is under constraint, is very similar to the way of the, that there are internal leaps and revelations when the body is under constraint. Those things were very, very closely tied together for me. Um, so Thumbscrews is a uh, book-length exploration of those ideas. Like what is, um, you know, when, when a body is restricted or a body is in pain, um, consensually speaking, what happens internally how, what what revelations are possible what what is the internal experience of those very external things and how can i explore those ideas within poems that are in the form doing the exact same thing that i'm doing in the content um, and trying to you know wed those things together as closely mm -hmm. as possible and then when it came to when it came to doom um I don't know. Supervillains are hot. Like it's just, it's. I've I've had a thing for bad guys my whole life. Like I'm sure this is not surprising to anybody listening to this podcast or who knows me at all, or or characters who've always attracted me uh, in real life and and fictionally speaking. And there's lots of really great, weird, complicated bondage stuff in comics man like there's a lot of people getting tied up in really really suspicious ways and there's a lot of like often unsettlingly erotic outfits and not necessarily in the ways that they're intended to be i don't think everything's a, tight everything's tight all every, the time. everything is everything is tight there's a lot of obvious latex like these things are just connected and that's great uh but it is also something that i wanted to really call out and explore at the same time that i was exploring um you know kind of that 
my own feelings toward what villainy means and what being a you know be, being the being an antagonist is or being an adversary is like what what are those ideas how do they look like um and it also starts to poke at some of the more uncomfortable or unconsensual um aspects or or um interpretations of bondage for example there's a there's a chapter in doom that's entirely about prisons um and is it's about that much more carceral relationship to bondage and kind of uh starting to tinker with that and like really profound discomfort and disgust i feel toward that um so there's 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 a lot of that more complicated i would i would say relationship with um with ideas around bondage and constraint uh tied in there as well and also it's just like a fun hot book about supervillains let's not forget that part <laughs> absolutely not and and a lot of these themes are going to come back again when we start to talk about uh hench in a few minutes but before i do i i wanted to talk a bit about kind of you know poetry as a practice you know poetry may be mm -hmm. the hardest road to walk from a career perspective you know because you know it's never going to be a full-time gig yeah there's there's no one who just gets to put that on their business card and that's you know that's all there is it's always going to be poetry and and so mm -hmm. i i was wondering for you was yeah was the the hope or the goal that that would be a central practice and then you would put other things around it or was it just one dimension of a multi, you know, kind of a multi-dimensional writing life? I think probably closer to multi-dimensional writing life than this is going to be the core of my identity and I'm going to arrange a bunch of things around it. Mm -hmm. um, I definitely uh, spent a long time trying to find ways that um, poetry could be more central and you know sort of a, a constant um presence in my creative life uh not that i've turned away from that at, at all it's just gotten a lot more varied and complicated um and certainly when uh went into post-secondary um it looked for quite a while like i was going to just be able to seal myself away in the ivory tower and become an academic and not kind of deal with the earth anymore which you know for a while was very appealing to me um probably because of the whole like earlier wizards thing it's like ah you mean i can live in a tower and not have to talk to humans about anything that's not in a book perfect <laughs> so it looked at that point like i would be able to do academic work i would be able to you know like teach probably writing and um and write poetry and that that was about as complicated as, as I wanted to make it, or that that seemed complicated enough for a while. Um, but I wanted to do still more other and different things. Um, so I didn't I didn't end up staying in the tower permanently at all. And I think instead you've you know, you've put together a very multifaceted career that crosses a bunch of different dimensions and a bunch of different media. Let's talk a bit about your work around gaming. And, sure. uh, and what that's been like, how, how did you get into it? What have you been, what have you been doing in it? Um, so like, like a lot of things that I do and love, uh, I've, I've played games since I was a kid, you know, like since I got a Nintendo at home when I was, a, I was a little kid, I have been playing and loving video games. I didn't 
actually consider that making them was going to be a thing I was able to do. Like it, that, that didn't necessarily seem like, um, whereas I, I definitely considered uh, writing comics as a potential career when I was, mm-hmm. you know, a, a kid or a teenager. I definitely looked, um, looked at writing novels or what, like what are career paths I could have? Like I could be a journalist, I could whatever. Um, making video games was not on that list because it, it didn't really enter my, I had no idea how, how it happened, <laughs> like how it, how it could <laughs> right. possibly occur. Um, then in 2013, I took a summer long, um, it's, some, it's called the Long Program. It's a, a series of workshops that um, a local organization uh, called DMG runs. Um, uh, DMG is a, uh, an organization that tries to create spaces for people of marginalized identities to make games uh, and, and learn how to make games and do so safely and, and in a supportive environment. Um, and this was sort of a like long program for people who had never made a video game before. Like, this is how you do it. I thought that would was rad as hell um, and signed up for it and uh, made a, a extremely broken, non-functional uh, little game about um, where you are a ghost haunting a house, uh, trying to figure out what your relationship is with all of these still living people. Uh, it was called Restless, and um, and it was hard and weird and a lot of fun, uh, and I I kind of never stopped making them after that point. I I did a bunch of DMG game jams and uh, and and other game jams, and I started making weird little text based horror game one shots, and uh, I started you know writing um, taking on contract work to do dialogue or um, you know voice line writing Mm -hmm. uh and that slowly kind of snowballed into where i am now which is often writing full game scripts um and you know doing doing story bibles and item descriptions for like 500 tiny objects that exist in a game and trying to be funny the whole time and you know writing branching narratives that are you know super super complicated and require maps um and I guess that's been like eight years, which is a kind of banana phones thing to think about because it definitely feels like, you know, six months or something. Um, but yeah, that that's that's sort of the very strange and circuitous route that got me there. I didn't think it was something that I was going to be able to do. And then I discovered absolutely it, it was. Your entry into that space in some ways corresponds with the expansion of that industry out of being a purely programmer driven world you know it's mm-hmm. you know kind of from that early nintendo time when it was really something that just was coming from engineers to as we get into the 2000s that's when artists are getting pulled in and writers are getting pulled in and there's like essentially the humanities layer of the of the gaming world starts to starts to get created it's also the time when we're starting to have conversations about gender and gaming we have you know you know we go through that kind of crucible of gamergate we mm-hmm. then start to build more of a a, a dialogue around you know, what is you know what does diversity and equity look like in the in the gaming space and the two two organizations that you're involved with that 
DMG, Dames Making Games, and the Pixels both work on that uh, work on that space. Can you tell me a little bit about what you're doing to try and push that forward? I'm I'm now on the board of DMG. It's one of those like they helped me <laughs> at the at the very beginning, and now you know like I I I want to do whatever I can to continue to expand that space and and help it be a thing that uh, that exists in the world. Um, just I think space is a very important idea here, both when we talk about safety and safe space and what that means, and just literally breathing room to make a thing. And I think both Pixels, um, which I was much more involved in when I, I lived in, in Montreal um, briefly during another failed affair with academia, both of them do wonderful things to create those spaces, whether that is, you know, like short or long programs, whether those are curated digital communities, um, when when this was a thing that people could do in the world, um, both were uh, ran extremely important um, in-person events, whether the like both socials and workshops and those sorts of game spaces. Um, it's very hard to make things when you don't feel safe. It's very hard to make things when there is not room for you to make a thing. When you are, you know, you're, you're so much of your energy is going toward um, trying to keep your defenses up and fighting for whatever, you know, the bit of space that you can. So if there are organizations that can make those spaces and kind of uphold those, um, those boundaries for creators and that might mean um you know just like giving them resources to work making sure that they have access to the software and hardware that they need um making sure that there are people they can ask questions of who are not going to be like shitty or racist or talk down to them to the absolute best of their human ability you know like whether whether that means like mediating difficult situations that come up in those spaces, whatever, um, you know, or, or literally money or literally platforms, you know, running, running conferences where, um, you know, new and marginalized, marginalized creators have a, have a space to speak from, right? Like creating all of those openings and, um, and, and, protecting as many of those spaces as possible to allow other people to make stuff. Um, the extraordinary things about like both Pixels and uh, DMG is they're not game companies, right? Like they're not uh, in the business of making games for consumption and just like hiring marginalized creators, for example, which by the way is, is incredibly important and crucial this is just different work. It's it's what they're both concerned with what they can do to make sure people have everything they have to make the games they want to make. Um, and I think I think that's really extraordinary. And those are really, really extraordinary missions to address some of the some of those issues from a content perspective, rather than from kind of a people and personnel perspective, you you created your own game. So you've been fridged. Can you mm -hmm. can you tell me a little bit about the concept and then what the game is meant to illustrate so so you've been fridged is a is a, a 
a game jam game that I made with um, Izzy Colpitz Campbell and Kat Verhoeven, and I'm, I'm really glad you brought it up for another reason. Uh, so, so you've been fridged um, deals with the women in refrigerators problem that exists in comics, a term coined by Gail Simone, like back in something like 1999, which is the uh, extremely unfortunate storytelling crutch of using women who are super powered, either having them killed, having them assaulted, or having them be depowered in some way to advance the story of other characters, usually male characters, and you know, sort of by the by the their their anguish or their death or their um, disenfranchisement is somehow a plot point um, or a or an important lesson or like mm -hmm. emotional journey for somebody else. This is the thing that kicks the hero into gear that motivates them to like go and do the next thing. Exactly. Uh, and the term comes directly from a moment in which a, someone's girlfriend was literally murdered and shoved in a refrigerator um, extremely graphically and then discovered by the hero. So So You've Been Fridged takes place um, in a fridge or a chest freezer and involves a um, superpowered woman trying to fight her way out and battling like ice crystals and frozen peas. And at the end, she encounters the narrative vortex, <laughs> the uh, big bad of this particular game who has uh, confined her to this frozen hellscape and, and associated role. The reason I'm really glad you brought that up, in addition because to you know women in refrigerators being uh, still a thing people are talking about and uh, a very lazy bit of writing that, that keeps happening, is... Um, it was at that game jam that I wrote the first words of Hench. Like I was, I was, I wrote that, the, I wrote the script for the game and I was, you know, working with, um, uh, working with my co-creators and there was a tiny lull where like I had found the sound files that somebody needed and another thing wasn't ready. And, you know, I, I had a little pocket of time at this jam and I wrote the first couple scenes of Hench. The segue is perfect because the, Issues that you're exploring in that game and the issues that that we start to talk about in in Hench overlap nicely in that idea that unless you're the marquee character, if you're the sidekick, the friend, the partner, especially if you're a woman, your odds are not good in no. most in most superhero <laughs> no, literature. Like definitely dismally not. bad. And so to to kind of continue that on and and talk about your latest book, Hench, introduce us to Anna. Tell us about a bit about her life. Anna is, at the beginning of the book, is a uh, administrator and data analyst who has been working for supervillains for a couple of years. She's a she's a freelancer, like a lot of of folks, uh, and is just trying to find a a gig that might be semi-permanent and might let her go to the dentist like a, a lot of us constantly are. She works these, you know, terrible jobs for very bad people because they are the jobs that are available to her. I have I have worked for organizations that I don't super love the mission statement of, you know, like I, I, I lived in Calgary and very briefly did admin for an oil company because I really needed the money and my marriage was falling apart. And 
it was very easy and definitely made the world a lot worse in doing so. And that, you know, I've had a, a lot of those experiences and, and they had a pretty big impact on me. Um, so Anna, Anna is someone who is uh, initially just trying to get by and is very, sometimes quite uncomfortably doing tasks that it kind of doesn't matter who you do them for. You know, whether you're answering the phones at, you know, an insurance company or an arms dealer or a supervillain is not really a very different experience. So she's she's someone who's uh, less about engaging with, um, you know, being a hedge person and, and more dealing with survival in an extremely unpleasant and, and hostile environment, very similar to our own. Um, and it is after she experiences very directly exactly how destructive heroics can be and how deeply injurious and harmful those activities can be um, that she kind of has to grapple much more immediately and 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 intimately and violently with um, with the cost of heroics and her place in that world and those relationships and uh, you know what she wants to do about that moving forward. I mean, let's be clear. It is a very funny book. It is a you know, there are <laughs> like you know for all that we're talking about very deep themes of good and evil. It's also a really funny book. One of the things I love about it is that it's it's a novel about workplaces. You know, is there mm. good coffee? You know, can you get your, you know, the excitement <laughs> of like getting your project approved and, you know, how we all might be willing to overthrow government if it meant that you could get good extended health benefits. Like, yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> all of the things that kind of make us decide, like, is this a place that I want to come back to every day? One of one of my favorite jobs that I have ever had is I worked as a cheesemonger in a in a in a fine cheese market uh, for a while. It was great. I got to eat a lot of cheese and drink a lot of wine while I was at work. And my coworkers were also, you know, both hilarious and in similarly terrible places in their in their life. And it was it was really really great. And the pay was awful. And, uh, you know, I, I got stress eczema all over my hands from the hours that I worked and having to, you know, wash my hands 75,000 times a day. And uh, it was not really good for me. But once a week during very busy periods, the, uh, the owner would have a massage therapist come in and everybody got like a half hour massage. And because of that, I like was more loyal to that job and that organization than I think I have been to any earthly organization in my entire life. It's those tiny benefits are so important. Uh, and and again, like that that had a pretty profound impact on me, you know, like would would I be a hench person if I for sure got like, really good physio and an extended dental i might i might i know this about myself now especially if you maybe you yourself aren't doing the you know the bad thing maybe you're acting oh, purely yeah, sure. in a supporting role like i'm filling out a spreadsheet what 
Mm, yeah. That's fine. I can definitely pretend a terrible thing isn't happening for quite some time. Well, and and throughout this book, you have heroes doing bad things. You have villains being good bosses. You have hench people who are you know also decent co-workers or bad co-workers. Are, is part of this all you know an exercise in just asking us to look past labels to get to the fundamentals of people's actions like what are you actually doing and what does that say about you yeah absolutely i think i think that's part of it you know that that the um a huge problem in in the universe as of the book as well as you know our own earthly one um is the uh the power of labels so if you are a hero you're a good person and if you're a villain you're a bad person and kind of bifurcating the entire world that way is not only inaccurate but extremely dangerous because it lets anybody who's been labeled a hero you know hide behind that veneer of whether it's respectability or you know like uh whatever the curtain is like it, it a lot of very very bad things can happen behind it um and a lot of the potential goodness on the other side is dismissed or devalued or you know deprecated in some way um both of which are are very damaging and dangerous in in their own particular ways so definitely a something i am doing is asking readers to look past those labels or that you know kind of binary value system into something a lot more gray and complicated um but it's also uh i think asking readers to look very carefully at the work those kinds of labels are doing like what is the value of hiding behind it what uh, what work are those labels doing in the worlds in which they exist? You know, what, uh, what does, what, what does calling somebody a hero potentially obscure? What is calling somebody a villain potentially dismiss? Um, and like looking at the, at the, the work that is doing, um, as well as trying to deconstruct it. We are in a time of polarization where it, you know, a time where ideological walls are especially high is there a is there a proxy for that in this like because you know you're either a villain or you're a hero and there is nothing in between absolutely like i think i think it's uh you know it it's i don't think my metaphors are very light <laughs> <laughs> I'm not I'm not being super subtle. I, I said this in a couple of interviews and I, I stand by it that uh, comics have a lot in common with the fairy queen. Um, like at the, Edmund Spencer's the fairy queen and that uh, the characters tend to be uh, like physical manifestations of ideas much more than they are people. You know, you have much in the fairy queen like a person represents love comics you have people who represent justice and people who represent vengeance or whatever that they're and they're much more um bound to those ideas than they are their own humanity um and i'm very interested in putting the humanity back into those um those characters and those situations and and uh those roles and those perceptions um and i'm i'm 
directly challenging people to look at who we are comfortable labeling heroes and what that is doing to obscure potential damage and wrongdoing and you know when uh alleged heroes are doing much more harm than good in the communities that are that they're ostensibly there to protect what what is happening there and what uh what are the potential dangers of those kinds of classifications like that's they're not yeah, they're not light or gentle metaphors. Like they're they're pretty direct parallels. Um, you know, there's there's uh, Anna directly says she's a penal abolitionist, <laughs> and you know, I I'm very much uh, we aren't we are definitely not the same person, but on on those particular issues, we're very closely aligned. You wrote an excellent piece for the Walrus where you describe a job that you had doing search engine optimization for an online porn company and yes did that give you some of the kind of the foundational ideas or the tone for this book that is kind of partly how do i feel about this you know this particular job on one hand and partly i'm being driven crazy by that person who keeps my microwaving fish for lunch (laughs) every day Absolutely yes, one one hundred percent yes. It was a super weird job uh, that was both like a lot of fun and and really uncomfortable, uh, and not for the reasons that um, that you might think. Uh, the The content was a hundred percent never a problem. The people I worked with often were, but also were often great. Um, so that that experience definitely uh, stuck with me and resonated with me. And um, there are certainly interactions that I had with, you know, my coworkers and my bosses that uh, are not identical in the book, but certainly reflect real life experiences that I've had. And you don't, you don't have to answer this, but is it possible that there is a passing resemblance between your boss's boss in the porn company and Hench's first villain employer, Electric Eel? 100% 100% yes. I'm absolutely comfortable saying yes. that. <laughs> yeah, there's it's it, the resemblance is not uh identical for sure. Um honestly, my uh um my my real life boss was much less harmless and much uh more creepy, but uh that, that he's, he's terrible, but is kind of weirdly, weirdly lovable in his terribleness um, in a way that, that my, my human earth boss was never quite able to achieve. But uh, <laughs> there's, there's definitely at least glancing resemblance to that character and situation. And as, as an important karmic lesson for all of us who might you know, <laughs> find ourselves in managerial positions that you know, should you not be good at your job, you know, you could find yourself immortalized as a like B or C grade, not especially successful supervillain. Like that's, <laughs> that could be in the cards for you and conduct yourself accordingly. Uh, conduct yourself accordingly. Uh, in A Knight's Tale, which I maintain is an excellent movie, um, Paul Bettany in, uh, in, in the role of Chaucer says to a couple of characters who sort of tormented and humiliated him, throughout uh the entire book um he he notes that uh he had to be naked for a day he will make them naked in prose for eternity 
and uh, I love that very much. Uh, it's it's a it's a wonderful moment that I I hold close to the burnt out little cinder of my heart, um, which isn't to say that like most of most of of the work and even most of E is not directed toward a particular person. You know, it's like oh, there's there's definitely a glancing resemblance to this. Uh, unfortunate person and uncomfortable situation that I was in, in that like, you know, there's, there's also, uh, I had a coworker who I did not get along with, who microwaved a lot of fish. Um, she also brought me someone else's cake on the last day of, of my job there. And you know what, like, I didn't, I didn't immortalize that in fiction yet necessarily. Um, there are, there are, there are definitely lots of real world situations that never, never make them in. But, um, I, I definitely feel a little bit, not a little bit, quite a lot of it that, you know, if that if folks don't want to be thought badly about, they should behave better. And it is not my fault. <laughs> it seems fault. like a simple rule. And yet. <laughs> it really does. And and it, it is not my fault if uh, in reflecting potentially reflecting any of that reality in fiction or otherwise um or writing that piece for the walrus which you know is is about my actual life and, and a piece of non-fiction um if if you don't want such things immortalized in print or online in in one way or the other perhaps conduct yourself accordingly <laughs> that is all seems fair <laughs> This was your first novel. Were there yes. other books that you looked to, other books that you had on the shelf as you were starting to write this one? Um, it's, in a lot of ways, Hench is a sort of gradual accretion of, you know, like a, a lifetime of reading comics and collecting for sure. Um, Soon I Will Be Invincible had a really, uh, like, really deep impact on me when I first read it. Um, that, uh, you know, it was, it was the like first book I'd read from the perspective of a super villain, like, su you know, really, really deeply that that definitely, um, definitely had an impact on me. Uh, Paradise Lost is really important and to me and is is kind of a like, the relationship between, um, you know, Satan, the adversary to the world, um, and, and, you know, Satan's character in Paradise Lost really deeply informs the way that I write villains. I have, uh, Dore's, um, uh, engraving of Lucifer falling as a half sleeve. So perhaps this shouldn't <laughs> be surprising that that, uh, that that was important to me. Um, I think, uh, Sandman was also really important, um, as well. Those comics um, have a lot of characters moving through roles a lot, you know, like s someone who uh, is a victim or a villain in one context becomes, you know, a protagonist in another and, you know, characters who are deeply disenfranchised in one instance become incredibly powerful in other places. Um, and that kind of fluidity of role was also um really really important to me uh a little like later on um books like uh like vicious 
by V. Schwab, really, really important. Um, books like uh, like um, The Night Circus and uh, a bunch of stuff by Catherine Valente, with, both of which feel very, um, like uh, Aaron Morgenstern and, and Valente's work, both feel very um, like messed up fairy tale to me, which is also a thing that like is very, very important. Um, so yeah, a, a, a lot. I'm definitely missing like, you know, fully three quarters of my inspirations probably in saying this. I know I'm always leaving people out, but. As I got to the end of, of Hench, I couldn't help feeling that this, like this was a book that has a, a sequel locked and loaded and, you know, ready to go. Is that, is that a possibility? Is that something you've been thinking about? It's definitely something I've been thinking about. It's also something that I'm I'm not secretly working on. Um, there is it is there's no guarantees, you know. Like there's there's okay. definitely I have I have no uh, like I am working on that. I have no idea what the future holds. You know, there there nothing is is certain or set in stone. But I love these characters. Um, I have a super fun time writing in this universe i think that as much as hench is um i really wanted to make it a standal alone unit like and it, it absolutely is, a complete, is yeah there's a complete story arc in there and and it's it's it works that way um i would love to spend more time there and i i do think there's a lot more to explore Five hundred thousand words of slow burn arc. That's what we're. <laughs> I want the fan fiction. What, that's get what we're on, get on this. That's there needs to be fan hench fan fiction hanging off the side of this. Is what we're Please. looking for. <laughs> that then the the dream has come true. That's literally my high bar of like, have I succeeded? Does fan fiction exist? Yes. Done. I've done it. Yeah, I've, I've hang it up. Goals achieved. Open a B and B. You're you're like you're finished. I'm done. I'm retired. <laughs> Natalie, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This has been lovely. I've been speaking with Natalie Zena Walshots. Her latest book is the novel Hench. It and the other books we have talked about here, along with previous episodes of the show, can be found at kobo.com/conversation or check the show notes. Be sure to catch every conversation by subscribing wherever you listen and leave us a rating, or even a rating and a review, because it helps other readers find us. Kobo and Conversation is produced by Nathan Maharaj and hosted by me, Michael Tamblin. Thank you for listening.